You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy live in the RRR performance space. Why are we here? Because we are celebrating 25 years, two and a half decades of Radiotherapy, and we are here with all the people we love and the listeners who have supported us with their hearts and their ears. Now, over the years, this little radio show has spawned a fair share of media careers, more than our fair share of marriages and babies and the odd divorce too. It's been a wild ride today, (laughs) and today is no different. Lined up, we have what is probably our best show ever. And did I mention we have a live studio audience? It's real. Um, first up, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are present or listening today. Now, regular listeners will know that there is just too much radiotherapy love to go around, so we dollop out the goodness into four teams. There's the radiotherapy justice team, headed up by the panel beater. Now, he's panelling out the back. There's the originals team. That's my team, Dr Mal. There's the youngin team, led by Dr Autonomy, to my right, and Dr Nick. And and driving team inappropriate to almost certain deregistration is Dr Doolittle, over to my left. Um, Today on the show, we will be chatting with author, journalist and public speaker Jill Stark, as well as stand-up comic author and radio host Nellie Thomas. It's going to be a huge show, but first, as always, it's time to see what's been happening in the medical journals and on TV this week. So the technical problems, it wouldn't be radiotherapy if we didn't have a series of uh, stuff-ups. 46 uh, seconds in, we've got technical problems. And if we didn't do our production meeting as we went. How much easier is the singing with a live audience, though? I know. (laughs) I know, that drowned us out. (laughs) Because we are egocentric. So, uh, on microphone to uh, the left, because that works in radio, is uh, Dr Doolittle. Hello, everyone. And uh, over here to my right is Dr Autonomy. Hello. Hey, now the big news this week, the big news, I mean there is no bigger news in medicine than what's been happening on SBS. Dr Autonomy, how mad are you? Oh, I tell you, I was watching TV Thursday night, who should come on air? Dun, da, da, da. Dr Doolittle. Doolittle, you're famous. But they made me use my other name. So no one knows. Steve. Yeah. I don't know what Steve. to call you now. Yeah. Do little Steve. Well, I think star is appropriate. Hosting. But you, can, you can choose. You can choose what you like. I mean, in we fact, are having do you to really think it's appropriate that you speak to me anymore? Really? I mean, should I be speaking to the public? I can't believe there's no red carpet as I came in. They treated me just like normal radiotherapists. No fanfare, no nothing. I can't believe it. You I haven't know. even been given a coffee. So we should talk about what this show was actually about. Uh, autonomy. Give yeah, well, us the called, context. It's called How Mad Are You? And Doolittle, also known as Steve hey. Allen, Steve, um, is hosting the show. And I guess it's based on this premise about can you tell if someone has a history of mental illness? And there's 10 people going through a whole range of experiments. Five of them have um, a history of a diagnosis of a mental illness and five of them don't. And there's these three experts, psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatric nurse, watching all these experiments and trying to work out who are the people who have a previous diagnosis and who are the people who aren't. Why on earth would you decide to go on reality TV? Well, I mean, the obvious reason (laughs) is I'm an an attention junkie, but that was not the real reason. Um, you know, it was an interesting one. So they approached, they approached me about a year ago now, a little bit longer, and, you know, said, we've got this idea, we want to use a reality TV format to try and break down stigma in mental health. And, they had, and it had been done before in BBC. They'd bought the format from the BBC. They'd done it about 10 years ago. And uh, they essentially said, you know, we, we think this is really great, we've got fantastic intentions and et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, I'm sure the other people that they approached were exactly the same. The initial thought was... Oh, it sounds risky. What if they? What if it's hackneyed? What if they? You know, it's 
more it adds to stereotyping yeah. rather than breaks it down. Yeah. It was a little bit um, uncertain. But I went and met with them and had a number of conversations and they just appeared to be have their heart completely in the right place. And so then I did the usual due diligence. I went and looked at all the other things they'd done and I'd read about the... Um, you know, the directors of the company, it's Blackfella Films. They made, they started off making a whole lot of Indigenous films and then they moved on to various formats looking at basically social justice issues like, for example, homelessness, filthy rich and homeless and stuff like that. And so I've decided, you know, to have a bit of faith in them. And uh, But it was one of those situations where it was weird using a reality TV format and it sort of felt like that old, you know, cliche of falling backwards and trusting everyone to catch you. You just have, have to take a chance... But it's also fair to say that, you know, I'm coming from the perspective here of thinking, you know, that our industry, the health industry, has been working on breaking down stigma for decades and, in my opinion, have mm. done a shit job, if, mm. if anything, we add to it mm. um, in a lot of our attitudes and it's time to let other people have a good go. And also, I think Beyond Blue sort of... I, I, you know, Beyond Blue is essentially an advertising approach to mental illness, mm. you know, mm. breaking it down that way. And mm. I thought, they've done such a good job, let other creative people have a go. So you were in a house. Were you, were you in the house for uh, a week? Yeah, was- yeah. So we went down to the Mornington Peninsula in a winery, beautiful winery. It looks amazing. Yeah, by the it was way. amazing. And they had you know little drones flying over everywhere, taking all those cool shots and mic'd up from you know seven in the morning till about ten at night every day and wandering. Around. I didn't have to do a lot though. So. My, my on-screen role was relatively small. So it was kind of Big Brotherish that, like, every single moment was caught on... No. No, not what? really. No, more they'd... Um, so there's a series of tests that they do. There's about yeah. ten different tests, some social, some sort of games like raft building and, and it's about three or four psychological tests. First one they had to do was they had two hours' notice and they had to get up on stage and do a three-minute comedy routine at a pub. Like... Yeah. Can you imagine anyone not being highly anxious and, every and one of the panicking te- yeah. about that? And every one of the tests was picked. You know, we spent... Th- that was my main role in it, if anything, is being the psych advisor in the lead-up, helping to set things up and pick what might bring out different... Um, different uh, personality or character or emotional states. And how did they select the three experts to do the diagnosing or whatever you're going to call it. Just interviews. It was word of mouth. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. yeah. It's interesting so, you use the term diagnosing because I would use the term guesswork. Yeah. <laughs> For me, the most uncomfortable bit about watching it is seeing those three experts trying to pick out tiny bits of human behaviour and make a guess by the end of the episode about who they think might have a diagnosis and what that diagnosis is and who doesn't. And they get it wrong and it's really awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah I did put diagnosis in inverted commas. Did, but yeah. that doesn't come across on radio. <laughs> but, um, you know, see, the, we, the thing about that is, of course, it's and I think they... Is, it's, that's not what clinicians do. So in, when a clinician sees a patient, essentially the patient walks in and normally with a letter from the doctor or someone saying this person's got depression schizophrenia and this is what we're after and even if they don't have a good letter essentially the patient walks in and tells you so this and that's and then everything flows from that so the whole issue around this show is that there's none of that so all you're doing is getting to um, observe people and the conceit the idea is this is what everyone does in everyday life they walk around not knowing what's going on and making judgments about people and then stigmatizing people discriminating to various degrees based on those judgments and so the idea is show that even if you get three experts you take away that initial letter and their fu's I can't spell then they've got no chance <laughs> There's this thing called the overconfidence effect, which essentially... Have I got that, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you've got it? It's named after you. I've got everything and I demand that I'm the best at (laughs) it. You're 100% sure you've got it. Um, Essentially, it's about people's um, ability to over-predict their uh, ability to do things. So the the classic example is um, there was a study done in the US about people's driving ability and what's the stat? 93% of US students rate themselves as above average drivers, 93%. Above average. Yeah, above average. Because that makes sense. And so this overconfidence effect is rife, but it's been shown that it's even higher in so-called experts. So if, if you're a psychiatrist, psychiatric nurse, psychologist, and you have this 
this belief about your expertise in a particular area, you're even more likely to overrate your ability to, to do this, because, which is why it's so uncomfortable to watch. But again, when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. So if you've got this ability in one area, you think that everything is in that area. But I, I think the other thing that this show does is something that... <laughs> I've never heard that phrase, right? by the way. When you're a hammer... You don't know that phrase, seriously. I've never heard when that. When you're a hammer, the whole world looks the like a nail. Yeah. It's one of my favourites. Yeah. Rob and I, I mean Mel, Mel. Pactus and I, say that all the time. All the time. Yeah. But the other thing that I reckon this show exposes... You should is listen when we speak more. You don't. You just tune out. You just sing off. I'm just confident that I've got the general theme and, anyway, yeah. And let's face it, you do. And back to the show. I reckon one of the other things that, this, that, that your show does... <laughs> can't call it your show. The show on SBS, um, How Mad Are You? Great show, great show. Is it also deconstructs, to my mind, the idea of the utility, the usefulness, the effectiveness of a diagnosis. When you say somebody is depressed or somebody has clinical depression... It doesn't capture the full experience, the subjective experience of what that's like for that particular human being. Sure, it ticks a box medically, but it doesn't capture what it's like. It's a summary. It's a summary used for the sake of communication. And I normally think, you know, well, we always teach our junior doctors, you know, you've basically got the one-word diagnosis, then the paragraph, which we call a formulation, which is normally two or three, and then the actual real person. And each one's trying to summarise for the sake of communication so you can pass things on. And there's pros and cons. You know, diagnosis can be a real aha moment in terms of helping you understand what's going on in the world and helping you research what's happening to you. But it's never, ever, 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 ever going to capture reality. Now, I just had an aha moment in that it is 10, 13 and 16 seconds. You are listening to Radiotherapy live with the studio audience. Three, triple, And we're back on Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Malpractice, Dr Doolittle and two very, very special guests on our live to air with a live audience. (laughs) You're going to get sick of doing that. (laughs) I'm having this uh, urge to keep doing that every couple of minutes. It's amazing. We have got two amazing guests this morning on our special live to air show um, and we are about to introduce the very first one, Jill Stark. So let me tell you a little bit about Jill before we get into the nitty gritty. You've probably already heard of her. Jill Stark's a best-selling author, award-winning journalist, media consultant and public speaker. Her career in the media spans 20 years with a decade at the age covering health and social affairs as a campaigning senior writer. And her first book, High Sobriety, My Year Without Booze, investigated Australia binge drinking culture. And she has another book. It's just come out. It's called Happy Never After, Why the Happiness Fairy Tale is Driving Us Mad and How I Flipped the Script. And it's an examination of our age of anxiety and the relentless pursuit of happiness. In it, she explores why, in a Western world with more opportunity, choice and wealth than ever before, so many of us are struggling to find calm and content. (laughs) Jill, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, it's the um, longest title in Australian publishing. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I love it. Uh, now, I have a funny confession to make. I've been, obviously, knowing that you were going to be on the show, I thought I'd better read the book before yep. we interview you. And I didn't read it. I listened to it. I oh. downloaded the audiobook, which you yes, read. And so I, ha- I feel like you know me intimately because you've <laughs> been with me in the car, in the bed, like doing the dishes. Like Over the last fortnight, I've just been listening to you read your book and it's been amazing so so nice to see you in the flesh (laughs) um I have to start by asking what's it like to read out your own (laughs) book is that it's very confronting so the first book I wasn't allowed to read it because they said that Australian audiences couldn't handle my accent sorry what did you say I couldn't understand your accent um this time I was like this is a really highly personal (laughs) memoir about you know some very dark times in my life and um coming through the other side of that and I didn't really want a voice actor to to do it so um I did it myself and it was very weird like you're sitting in a studio for four days on end five days even and you're just listening to the sound of your own voice (laughs) talking about a breakdown that you've had and then you you stumble over a phrase and you've got to repeat it um and then you're sort of like thinking about your like you're reading out your thoughts of your own inner critic while your own inner critic at the time is saying you're fucking this up like um sorry are we allowed to swear it's too actually yeah Yeah. um it was very meta and it was very confronting but i yeah i really enjoyed it in the end and i've had a lot of people who've said they they like listening 
to me in the car. Absolutely. Can I ask on that thing, though? So, because you are talking about very personal things and yet, you know, it is a very impersonal process reading it out. So... How did you decide how much emotion to put in? Like, you've got to put in some because you can't talk about terrible things and not put in any, but well, then you're not an actor. Yeah, so how did funny. you know? I mean, as you'd know, Steve, when you've written a book, um, like, I could probably almost recite 100,000 <laughs> words back to you. Like, I've, I've, it's been a process over several years. And it's amazing when you actually read it out loud that you see things that you hadn't noticed mm. before. Like, I noticed four typos and it was too late. The book had gone to print <gasps> and I was like, oh, my God. But also, I, I became quite emotional reading parts out that I hadn't... You know, there was a, there's a part in the book where a, a friend of mine from The Age who's a very hard-nosed investigative journalist, a crime reporter who's, you know, hard-drinking, kind of used to chasing down gangsters. And in in um, the book, there's a, a, an episode where he, he extends this very generous um, display of compassion to me. And lots of people had read that part of the book and said it made them cry. And I was mm. like, really? And then I read it out and I was bawling. <laughs> so I, I had to, like, go back and read that again. So I don't think you need to work too hard to put the emotion mm. in there. It just, it just comes naturally when you're reading it. Yeah, because I, I had to read a similar thing once about when I had depression and I left it to the very last thing, so I didn't read it in order in the book. But I, re- I still really struggled. It's you know. hard. It's, when you're reading, like, the, the darkest days, like the toughest times of your life out loud, it's quite difficult. But I think um, it, it gives it that authentic voice so people know when they're listening that it's real. Um, and I have to, before we go any further, I just have to say congratulations. It's an amazing book and... You know, the way that you describe um, your struggles with mental illness, the um, interactions you've had with health professionals, you know, what helped... Your description of attachment, for example, Mm. and how what happens in our childhood impacts our adulthood is one of the best descriptions that I have ever read, listened to, and I I have used that with my clients since hearing you. It's, it's, It's superb. But I just... In, in reading the book, I was brought to tears multiple times and I just kept having this reaction of, my God, what a gutsy thing to do to put all of that stuff out there. You know, it's hard for clients in a confidential private space to put all of that stuff out there just with one other human being in front of them. Mm-hmm. To put it out there into a book that now is out there in the public, I just think is such a remarkable thing to have done and such a huge thing around mental health Thank stigma. Thank you. But I appreciate that. It's, I mean, it's a huge compliment to know that you're using it in clinical practice. Although I, totally I do am. point out in this, in this book that I'm not a doctor, I'm no way an expert, I'm only an expert on my, on my own um, struggles, I guess. Um, but I think for me, one of the reasons I wrote this book was I, I, I've been told this a lot, that it's really brave that you put this out there. And that's, that's nice to hear. But at the same time, why should it be an act of courage to show the world the, the imperfections, the flaws, mm. the vulnerabilities mm. that we all have? And I think that's what I wanted to show is that we all struggle. Um, a lot of it is invisible battles. Um, so I think the more that we talk about it and not just talking about it, but like really talking about what we need to do with the mental health system beyond wristbands and hashtags, you know. Do you know, one of the bits that I really... One of the things that appealed to me uh, is your notion of the relentless pursuit of happiness and how destructive that is. Uh, just just on Friday, just yesterday, I was taking... A, well, two days ago, I was taking a group of medical students and I said, you know, you, you don't have to be happy the whole time. Mm. This is just um, an expectation that has been promulgated that is... It's false and it makes you feel bad that you're not happy and it makes you feel worse. And here you are talking about exactly that. So... Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about all these um, self-help books that, that say you should be happy all the time? Well, I mean, this, yeah, I mean, this book starts at the, with my first book and how that was a critical success and it kind of was a dream come true and that's what I thought I would need to make me happy like that. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. turns out, who knew, that that stuff <laughs> is not actually what makes us whole as humans. So, but we're not taught that. We're taught that, you know, we're planned for the wedding and not the marriage, the birth, not the baby. Like we're always just plodding along to this, sort of on this journey um, to an end point and there's no end point. And I think for me, the self-help um, market is absolutely crammed with books telling you how to cure yourself and what the answer is. And, you know, like Newsflash, there is no quick answer. And that's that's the book that I wrote. Is basically the book that I wanted to read when I was in a really tough place. It says, you know, yes, it's a struggle. And 
uh, hopefully, I would hope that this is a book that, yes, it, it tackles some dark um, issues, but ultimately it's uplifting because it, it's a book about hope, but it's not that kind of phoenix rising from the ashes, you know, the, from the darkness to the light, that kind of journey that we, we, we hear about so often is that you, you get, like, you know, five sessions of cognitive behavioural therapy and then you're cured. Like, no, that's not actually the reality for most people. Um, the human condition is... To struggle, um, and we have moments of joy and happiness along the way, but we get into a lot of trouble when we think that happiness should be our default position. Yeah, I remember listening to uh, the first time I heard Leonard Cohen, you know, the singer. He uh, and, and I really wasn't into Leonard Cohen. I just kind of went along because all my mates <laughs> were going. And then I had this like, you know, Blues Brothers in the church in front of, you know, um, uh, it was, uh, who was it? Uh, the Reverend James Brown, you yeah, know, and the yep, flash yep. of light yeah. comes down. Go, we went oh. as the Blues Brothers to a fancy dress party about three weeks of, ago. Yeah, it was a, that was a big success for us. <laughs> People said, who are you guys? You know, anyway. Um, so, uh, and I thought, my God, this guy is a genius. And his first, one of his first lines were, it's the cracks where the light comes through. You know, this idea of magnificent imperfection, that we are yeah, all broken. I, I, and that's how we are. In, in the book, I talk about um, kintsugi, which is, which is the Japanese mm. art of repairing pottery with powdered gold. Um, and so they make the broken beautiful. And I, and I think yeah. that's what that's I find through, yeah. through all of this, is that the flaws that I used to think made me abnormal and weird are actually what makes me human and makes me unique, as we all are so I think it's about wearing those flaws on the outside. Jill one of the things that really rang true in the book for me was how tokenistic a lot of the stuff we try to do for mental health is you know posting something on our Facebook page saying you know if you don't post this you don't really care for one hour put this thing up yeah, or yeah, we don't care we're not <laughs> posting uh, um, and, and one of the things that you talk about in depth is the stuff that you actually think will make a real difference um, for mental health. And you, you talk about your experiences with a range of different health professionals, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, GPs, and the time you finally meet a GP who you feel hears you and gets you and spends the time with you, you know, that's one of the moments that brought me to tears. And, but you talk about how expensive that process is if you're actually going to get the help you need. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about where you think the money needs to go? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously acutely aware that I'm in a privileged position where I um, had a job at the age at the time and they actually paid me throughout my five months off work when I was quite unwell, um, which is a really unusual situation. I had family who could afford to pay for my treatment otherwise I don't think I'd still be here like there is we have a real problem between with poverty and mental illness and not because being poor makes you mentally ill but the social constructs that you know that don't support us when we're um, when we're not very well I think um, for me the the medical profession can be quite reductive when it comes to mental health, and that's why I've not watched your program yet, um, <laughs> Doctor. What are you, Doctor Steve? Do a little. Doctor Steve. Sorry. Or Steve. Doctor Steve. Um, but I, 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 it concerns me a little bit that this idea that you can just pinpoint people's mental illness by uh, looking at their behaviours. I think that the pathologising of the human condition has become a real problem, like really largely led by the pharmaceutical um, companies, where there's a, um, a remedy for. Um, <laughs> is it a cheer we hear? The audience is expressing their yeah. agreement. Um, there's a remedy for every malady, and often, like, you know, I, I felt like that every time I went to into the medical system, I was treated like a collection of symptoms rather than a human um, being with suffering and with a backstory that, that came with it. So when I found a doctor, like one of the doctors who sat me down and basically, you know, the Kessler scale where you have to tick a box to see how depressed you are, um, and then that will then give you, allow you to have a mental health um, care plan. But she basically said that I was only ticked, I think, 20 25 or something on a scale, whatever it was. Um, so I was only mildly to moderately depressed, so that was okay. And then gave me some pills and said, like, these ones are okay because you're not suicidal and they're quite easy to overdose on, so you'll be all right. <laughs> I was like, well, I wasn't planning to kill myself, but now that I have, I now have the knowledge that should I want to, the drugs you've just given me are well equipped for the job. You know, it's that, that kind of... And then I was out the door in 15 minutes. When I met this new doctor, she spent an hour and a half with me and it, it felt like I was you know, being given a hug almost, but it cost $250 for that session. Um, I got a lot of it back, but you have to have the money in the first place to pay for that. Um, and it's, it's, we really need to be looking at GPs in terms of training, but also giving them... We had a story just recently saying that 60, more than 60% of people in doctor's surgeries are there for mental health problems, and yet they're not funded. The doctors aren't funded 
for longer consultations. So they're they're in a difficult position. So I think we need to go beyond you know bloody lip timber, like wear lipstick for in September for mental health. Like shove that up your ass. Sorry, but like how how the is lipstick. that? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit early for that, sorry. isn't it? Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, my fantasies are coming... Oh. <laughs> anyway, oh, I'm, yeah. on, I'm on my soapbox, but I, I feel like there's um, a lot of cheap slacktivism, and I think, yeah, we've raised awareness. That's great. I'm really pleased that we have, but we need to do more than that because we're at a point where we have the highest youth suicide rate in a decade. It's no longer enough to cut and paste something on Facebook and feel good about it. You, we need uh, actually some leadership. Couldn't agree more. I... Th- because I, I do agree we've done pretty well as a community with um, reducing some of the stigma and raising awareness, but we haven't really addressed health services other, other than a couple of fantastic programs, you know, of, watch, of which probably Headspace is the biggest and most well-known. But the basics of the system still... The GP model, you know, and at the end of the day, the medical approach to mental health is just one of many approaches where we try and understand mental health in terms of a so-called disease model where we think of it as an illness and we think of it as there's some sort of thing you need to do to fix it. Um, it's just one of many philosophical ways we can understand the human condition. And there's nothing to suggest it's um, it's got any more authority or uh, or efficacy than any other system, yet... The way things have gone in our efforts to um, publicise mental health, we've approached it with this incredibly simple model. So it seems to me like we've taken the first gentle steps. 20 years ago, no-one knew about mental illness. 30 years ago, we thought anxieties virtually didn't exist. One or 2% of the community had them, etc., etc. No-one knew about this stuff. So we're at the stage where we know, but it's absolute baby steps. We still haven't got a system. The actual mental health system is grossly underfunded with respect to the... compared to the physical health system. You still... Everyone in this room can't choose which hospital they go to. You get a mental illness tomorrow and you go into the public system, your street address directs where you go. If you get a heart attack, you can say, I want to go to this hospital, it's just one hospital of the year. I want to go to there because it's so far behind. The the reductive nature of presuming that everyone who is struggling is mentally ill is is problematic in itself. Absolutely. It's a medical model. Yeah, it's a medical model. We look at the DSM, like it's it's a it's a math like the psychiatrist Bible now has used to have a grief exclusion in it where if you were (coughs) experiencing a bereavement, you couldn't be diagnosed with um, a major depressive disorder for quite some time because obviously the losing someone, there's no pill that can really fix that. But now you can be diagnosed with depression after two weeks of grieving if you show those signs. Like we're medicalizing the Real basic parts of human condition of the human condition, which is to experience loss and sadness, frustration, anger, disappointment—all the things that we need as humans to live a full life—we can't just airbrush all that out of the picture. Which is what I love about the authenticity of your book so much because it, it tells the whole story. Um, you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. It's our special live to air with Dr Doolittle, Malpractice, myself, Dr Autonomy and our first special guest, Jill Stark. I'm going to throw it wide open. We've got a live audience. I think we should use them, We've should we not? For one question. I, I mean, I'm about to turn around and face the audience and I'm really hoping someone is going to have their hand up. Are there any audience questions for Jill Stark? We do have a mo- up the back. Oh, we yeah, we're going to need a mic. Sorry, I didn't give no, anyone yeah, no. any warning. Fantastic. No, no, use the mic anyway so the audience can hear you. The radio audience, the radio I mean. Audience. The radio audience. Okay, we're it's just right getting a mic. You. We have an audience question. Over to you. Um, the book that came out just recently called Mental, uh, which talks about um, GP to psychology to and what you're referring to um, as um, finding the right GP that finds your personality then to find somebody else to find your personality um, is very, very, very distinct. And I was very lucky that I had a good GP that put me onto the right psychiatrist. And um, the whole thing about mental health is that you've got to find that right first GP that understands where you're coming from, gets your personality. Do you agree with that in any way, shape or form? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really difficult when you're, like, experiencing these, like, very challenging 
issues to talk about your deepest pain and um, to have someone who is quite dismissive, which I've experienced many, many times with doctors and psychologists, can be extremely damaging. And for many people, if that's their first experience and only experience with the mental health system, they don't come back. Um, and that's, that's when people fall through the cracks or they get sent out of the door with a prescription and no support, no psychologists. And what do we expect? We have psychologists as well. I had one psychologist who said to me um, when I was really, really unwell, um, she gave me a snow globe and said to me, and shook it up and said, oh, worries are like snowflakes. They all, they swirl around, but eventually they all settle down. And I just looked at her and I was like, I just want to throw this snow globe in your head. <laughs> Gee, I'm going to um, go and buy a half worry. a dozen and give them out next week. Oh, I love it. So yeah, we, we, need, we, we need to, um, I think, start with basic training for GPs. And I don't know how much mental health training GPs get. Not enough. Not, they not get enough, some, but, but not enough. But like, to, to realise, as you say, that it's not just about looking for symptoms and looking for uh, um, a medical model, but looking at that person's suffering. And you know, somebody might be very depressed, but what they need is to quit their job, not to be put on Prozac, you know? You know, just out of interest, that study you mentioned where GPs said 60% of their work is mental health, they also had to list what they felt most and least confident with. Yeah, and of course, health. mental health was their least confident yeah. area. Three, triple R. Hey, um, as uh, Dr. Autonomy was just telling you... Oh, and we've also got malpractice on the panel. Not that I want to acknowledge him, because he drives me nuts, constantly telling me what to do. Um, we have another special guest, two special guests in the one show. I can barely believe it. This special guest is called Nellie Thomas. Nellie is a stand-up comic, author, professional MC and keynote speaker. Uh, Nellie also moonlights on the ABC Radio Melbourne, filling in for various people, including Lindy Burns, on Evenings, which is where we met. We did indeed, yes. Um, since 2016, she's been an ambassador for the Jean Hales um, Foundation for Women's Health, Australia's largest health organisation, and she is a well-known health promotion speaker, often being asked to speak on all sorts of topics like mental health, women's health, children's health, family violence, gender equity, and a range of other things. Nellie has three books, Some Boys... Some girls and what women want. Welcome, Nelly. Oh, thank you. So awkward, isn't it? Sitting here while someone reads out your stuff. I know. I always oh. try and I always start with a long intro and I shrink yes. it and shrink it and shrink it and shrink it. And, but you're always scared you're oh. going to miss out some key features. Nelly Thomas, human person. Here I am. Oh, well, I've heard you do your intros too on 774 yes. and you do, you know, summarise them way down. <laughs> I think we no go too long. No one cares. I don't well, know, who but wants to hear someone's CV? I Seriously. think it's context, though. I, I, I like it because context. Steve, 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 that guy, he knows some stuff. Dipshit, doesn't know much. Now, let's get straight on to why yeah. you're interested in mental health. Given we're here sort of doing mental health theme, I know you do all sorts of health, but yeah. let's focus down. What, why do you do mental health? Uh, because I'm mental. In short... Um... Well, aren't we all, though? That doesn't narrow it down. Because I still believe 100% of us are in some way, shape or form. Uh, see, I, I'm going to I'm going to counter that a little bit. I actually personally, so I was diagnosed in my early twenties with uh, depression and chronic anxiety, and I actually found the diagnosis of both of those things useful um, because they helped me understand what had been going on for me, and quite frankly, what had been going on in my family. And I think the I come from a little town and a very conservative environment where these things aren't spoken about and there's a lot of groupthink mm -hmm. and dysfunctional behaviour becomes normalised. So it was really actually helpful for me to go, no, this isn't normal. Um, and by normal, I mean healthy. And uh, the diagnosis is one that I'm quite happy to retain so that I keep on it and keep on my health. So the medical model for you then? Pros well, and cons. I and, and again, I think I have some problems with the medical model, and I think antidepressants are overprescribed, except all the things that we all know. But I think we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, because I think the medical model, um, I personally think, should be retained but improved. So, for example, rather than saying, um, you know, don't go to your GP, and not that that's what anyone's saying, but I'd be going, hey, how about we do allow GPs an hour and a half so mm. they can sit with you like they did with Jill, and sit with you. And 
and properly talk to you. I take antidepressants. I'm very open about that as a quote-unquote public person um, because I want to destigmatise that and because, frankly, they save my life. Um, I think that they're overprescribed. I don't think you should be medicalising grief, for example, or the, the human condition, but they have helped me and... I'm not no spokesperson for Big Pharma, but they have helped me, so I will not um, throw them out. I also think we went from, what, 20 funded sessions for the psych down to 10. Let's go back to 20. Hey, let's go back to, can I please see my psych once a week? Let's go back to 52. We can't go back there. So rather than throwing out the medical model, I want the medical model improved because exactly what Jill said, if you haven't got money... Quite frankly, you are screwed. So, so Nelly, you are Prime Minister for the day yep. and you can do whatever you want. Yep. You've got unlimited resources. Yep. What would you do? How would you change the system? Well, the first thing I'd do would be get rid of neoliberalism. Is, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> whatever you want. Because... Um, but I don't, actually, I don't know what neoliberalism well, is. Well, I mean this, and I mean this seriously, okay. even though I was joking. My main problem with the medical model is that neoliberalism and the medical model individualise mental health problems and we don't step back and I've had very few psychs or whether they're psychiatrists or psychologists who step back and go, hey Nelly, are you overworking? Are there expectations in your workplace that are too great? Um, how's the pressure of being uh, a mother as well as a friend, as well as a lover, as well as a... Are you isolated from other people in your community? So we individualise what are actually ideological problems. That's, that's a quote you and I have talked about before, I'm pretty sure which is before you diagnose yourself with depression, make sure you're not surrounded by assholes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you send a person with asthma into a smoke-filled room? No. So why do we send people with anxiety and depression into a current industrial relations system where we're expected to overwork, we have insecurity, we're casualised, we're on contracts? These things are are terrible for everyone's mental health. So you take the silos away. Absolutely. Gotcha. Absolutely. So, Nellie, in a similar vein to uh, what I was asking Jill about, I know both of you say we want to reduce the stigma, that's why I talk about this stuff, but I still have this reaction of what an amazing thing to do to decide I've been through this really horrible, tough time and then to put that out in a big way, on mm. stage even, mm. you know, for you. And I hear that you're now helping other people to also perform, you know. Mm. Can you tell me, firstly, was there a moment where you thought, I'm actually just going to put this out there and kind of speak my truth to the world. And how on earth do you convince other people to do to that? To do that. Um, I think the best and worst thing about comedians is that we'll talk about anything. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're prepared to get up and, I don't know, on stage and talk about your vagina, you're certainly okay <laughs> with talking about, you know, mental Been health. Been there, done that. Been there, haven't we, Steve? Who hasn't? Um, so, and I honestly, it's for me it's actually the opposite. I sort of look at, I do a lot of health gigs <laughs> and I'm around a lot of health professionals and I honestly look at you people, in inverted commas, and go, why can't you be more vulnerable? Why can't you be more human? Why can't you come to me as a human being rather than an expert? Mm. I know some stuff too. Mm. I was going to say, clearly you've never been on a ward round with uh, Dr Doolittle. I once, I was, I said, hey man, let's go out for some lunch. He goes, yeah, yeah, I've just got to do a quick ward round. And so I've never actually seen a patient with Dr Doolittle before. We go on this round, it's in a general hospital. He walks into the first patient. They, they start talking about, I don't know, Australian Idol or something. And he goes, I can sing. And he starts belting out a song <laughs> with the patient. And the patient joins in. And we walk out and I say, is that your typical ward round? He goes, no, that's nothing, mate. Wait till you see the next patient. And then oh. same on some, And he was a human being, which I just thought was... But know, this is the reason that... And I met Steve when I um, was working on ABC Radio. And one of the reasons that I absolutely fell in love in a platonic way with Steve <laughs> is because this is a psychiatrist who's prepared to say that he's had depression. Yeah. Now, I have done literally hundreds of gigs in this area and I never had a GP, psychologist, psychiatrist, mental health nurse, anyone prepared to say, you know what, 
I'm no different to you. I'm as vulnerable to as to these conditions as you are. Instead, there's that ivory tower approach, frankly, uh, and that's really why weird, you need yeah. other mm. people. It is weird, you know. Foot. The, the thing that gets me too now is footballers are more likely to stand totally. up. Totally. You know, they're more likely to stand up and talk about their mental health, and they have been for five odd years now. Mm. Um, and you still, even doctors in groups, you know, dinners still don't. Even though half the time mm. we know each other have been, mm. you know, <laughs> to help. It's just. And I, you're I don't asking get it. your by which I mean your professions collectively, are asking us to be vulnerable. Mm. If you're asking us to be vulnerable, you step up and show me how. I love it. Tell us about the program. That, that was the second part of, Roni's, of Dr Autonomy's question. <laughs> um, you, did, you did a program where you encouraged other people with disabilities to um, Yeah, to well, talk about so it. I did a... I've done a lot of um, uh, work with people with mental illnesses, uh, including myself, but one program that I uh, worked on was for women with disabilities. It was a program through uh, the VCA, Victorian College of the Arts, and it was basically encouraging women with disabilities who wanted to do stand-up. And I think out of the... 20 about a quarter were there because they identified as having mental illness and one of the interesting things was listening to them say that they didn't feel they didn't know if they were part of the disability community or not and there's quite a lot of you know debate about that which is for another day Um, but the most interesting part of that I thought was watching one of the participants um, had uh, has schizophrenia and that is one of the conditions I think that we, are st- we haven't got even dented the sides of the of the stigma. So we can talk, footballers will get up and talk about having depression, anxiety and comedians will and journalists will but I'm yet to see any get up and say I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia. We're terrified of schizophrenia so Heidi Everett and I encourage you to look at her up on um, YouTube it is public. She did this fantastic fantastic piece about schizophrenia, um, owning her own narrative about it, destigmatizing it, talking about the failings in the in the public health system in particular to deal with it. And her big thing, it's very funny, but one of her big things is about putting, you asked about funding, putting funding into helping people stay well, not just talking about this is what happens when you go to hospital but help me stay well so I don't end up in hospital. You know, part of the problem there, though, is that we actually... We we spend money on things that have an evidence base and Mm. absolutely amazingly... We don't actually have an incredibly strong idea about what makes people um, stay well. We're really good at studying disease because it's simple from a scientific point of view. But studying wellness is super hard. No, no, not wellness because now we're getting into, you know, I'm with Jill on the self-help books, like seriously stick a fork up my ass before I'll read one of those. Um, or <laughs> lipstick. Uh, but... <laughs> What we do know... Why not? Why discriminate? Why not? (laughs) What we do know for sure, and this is evidence-based, and Heidi can talk about this until the cows come home, we know people need stable housing. Oh, true. Yep. Hey? Yep. Guess what Heidi hasn't had? Stable housing. Mm. So I'm not talking about, you know, macrame projects. I'm going back to (laughs) let's not individualise this. If people got nowhere to live, they're not going to be well. Very true. Very, very, very true. I remember, in fact, uh, the ch- ch- child psychiatrist at the Alfred used to regularly say, when they'd get referrals, he'd say, the kid hasn't got housing. Yeah. How can we do mental health if they don't know where they're sleeping tonight and they don't know where their next meal's coming from? Mm. And I remember Anne Mitch, a famous doctor, when we first started doing HIV in Australia, I remember her standing up at a meeting early on and said, we're not going to get anywhere unless the very first thing we do with every person who walks through the door with HIV is make sure they've got housing. Absolutely. 100%. And Timber so, and, and, and beyond, and they're all wonderful and I support them and it's fantastic, but if you are not av- advocating for people to live in dignity, including including the housing, then it's a waste of time. I think it's a really interesting question to ponder what we want to teach next generations about mental health. And um, Jill, in her book, talked a lot about some programs that are in schools at the moment. Mm. Um, you're a mum. You've also mm. written books for kids. Do you have any idea? I mean, I'm sure you have lots of ideas, but what are your kind of take-home messages about what do we need to be teaching kids and, and teenagers about this stuff and how can we help them be better equipped than we've been? Well, to take away, let's assume that we've got, you've given me the magic wand and everyone has their housing, housing and they can afford yep. their food and, and medicine and whatever they need. Um, abs- 100% with boys, but with girls as well, it's expressing feelings. 
and destigmatizing. So my kids, for example, I go, like, where are you going? I go, I'll go to see Anne. What do you see Anne for? Oh, because sometimes I have big feelings and I don't know what to do with them. You know, because they're young, so I don't say I'm going to see the side because she costs a fortune. No, I do, you know, so actually normalising that stuff and getting them to, we call it big feelings because mm. of their age, and it's okay to have big feelings and what do we do with them. I don't know about anyone in the audience, but in my family, if you've gone, I've got big feelings, like, ha, <laughs> get over it, you know, or it'd be funny or it'd be like it would have been a joke or it'd be, no, it, nothing's happening here, nothing's happening, all the air's gone out of the room. So actually just honouring the human condition. <laughs> yes, you are going to feel sad. You're feeling sad now. It's okay. You'll be all right. <laughs> How does comedy interact with that? Because sometimes I think comedy brings things out mm. and sometimes comedy locks things away. You know, cause, mm. so how do you, how do you reconcile, you know, trying to talk big feelings and, you know, doing, using comedy in a good way but not using comedy in a way that stigmatises mm. it further? Are you going to charge me for this conversation? Yeah, I already... Yeah. I, yeah, the, the, <laughs> So I'll answer it with an example, which is that I used to do a lot of jokes when I first started about my family of origin. So my thing is I won't do jokes. Don't worry if any of you are friends. I don't do jokes about friends because I don't think it's fair. Um, but with my family of origin, I'm like, it's fair game. You know, you, you, you made this little scenario, so let's go. So I used to do jokes about, you know, it might be, I don't know, an uncle teasing me for being fat or, you know, like something like that. Yeah, oh, isn't he an asshole? And it got to a point, um, I think about my mid-30s, where I went, actually, this hurts me. This isn't funny. It wasn't funny to be 12 and have someone in authority make fun of my body you know, or whatever the various other examples are. And so I stopped doing it because it was, it was actually, it was funny for the audience. It wasn't funny for me. It was actually harming me. Having said that, I think comedy absolutely is, now you calm down here, um, Steve, it's a lubricant. I'm you away know, from the microphone. It's, it's, it's a lubricant for the conversation. That's an open goal for Steve. That's, yeah, I know. Just waiting to get this is why I actually gave him the warning. But it actually, for especially, frankly, for men, so I do a lot of, because I'm from the country, I do a lot of like rural gigs and stuff, but not just men, young people as well, to be able to have, um, bring your own humanity, have some appropriate jokes. You never make the mentally ill person the butt of the joke. You know, but one oh one. Yeah. <laughs> so you but using humor can help normalize the conversation. I mean there's there's this notion that I'm being told to shut up. There's this notion that um, a lot of comedy comes from dark places. It does. And, and, and mm. like uh, I'm thinking of people like John Belushi who, mm. who, who was quite troubled mm. and, and was just a fantastic comedian. I mean, is that true, do you reckon, for most comedy? You have yeah. to be a little bit dark? I mean, if you're asking me, most the comedians I know are a bit mental, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to varying degrees. But then I, I say, I mean, I'm kind of with Steve on this to some degree. Most of the people I know are. Yeah. It's like, I mean, what's that old cliche? It's the normal ones you have to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the people who present to me as very contained and like they've got their shit together, they're the ones I'm thinking, do you need a lasagna? Like, you know, there's something, you know, what are you hiding? <laughs> I, I'm used to people who are more yeah, open and okay. that's comedians. Great. Yeah. I do think we're going to have to draw this part of the interview to the end. Um, you've been listening to Nellie Thomas, who, as you know, have just found out, is an expert in lots of things, including mental health, and uh, speaks widely in various different settings. You're listening to Radiotherapy, everyone. It's 10.53. It's Sunday morning. You have autonomy. You have malpractice. You have myself. We've got a couple of quick announcements. Then we're going to come back and wrap this baby up. Over to Catch Mojo Juju live at Triple R, playing tracks from her third album and recent three Triple R album of the week, Native Tongue. Wednesday, October 17, at 6:25 p.m. during Out on the Patio, live from the Triple R performance space. I don't speak my Subscribers, stay tuned for your chance to be part of the audience. Mojo Juju live at Triple R is brought to you by Mountain Goat Triple R sponsors. Coming up as part of the Made of Ballarat event series, enjoy some of the region's finest wines with Vino Veloce and Mitchell Harris Wines. Spend an evening sampling Pinot from a range of local winemakers as they discuss the flavours and origins of their drops. Plus match pork dishes from McNunn's Salt Kitchen Charcuterie. Friday, October 19 from 6.30pm at Mitchell Harris Wines in Ballarat. For bookings, head to madeofballarat.com.au. Visit Ballarat, sponsoring Triple R. 
Australia's flagship sustainability event, the National Sustainable Living Festival, is now open for applications for February 2019. To celebrate its 20-year anniversary, SLF is now calling all changemakers, presenters, artists, performers and creatives to submit their applications for the biggest disruption yet. There's never been a more important time to join the festival. Apply now at slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival, sponsoring Triple R. And we're back on, everyone. You're listening to Radio Therapy. It's our live to wear. We've just got our last few minutes to do some thank yous. Then we're going to do some Q&A if audience want to stick around. Um, that's not you, radio audience. That's real live people with pulses in the room who are about to cheer. Pulses. Yay! 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 <laughs> Um, yeah, what do, I, what do I normally do at this point? 10.55? We normally say thank you to oh, all yeah, the... Oh, let's do all the thank yous first. people so we don't have, run out of ...that time. have uh, helped us be um, here on radio, um, especially Beck Hornsby, who is the program manager here at Triple R. She's just gold. She's been, like, you could not mani- uh, imagine a more supportive person for us. Uh, Elizabeth McCarthy, who's the breakfast and talks producer. We'd probably get about two emails from Elizabeth every day with great ideas and promoting really good uh, uh, interviewees. Lauren Taylor, who's the events and live to wear co- coordinator. Who is over in the back of the room. Yay, Woo! gets a special. Who I met for the oh, first time today. Oh, Elizabeth's here too. Oh, Elizabeth. Yeah, she was taking lots of photos. Uh, <laughs> Dave Hoochin, who's the station manager. Thank you guys for 25 years of love. And a big special thanks also, obviously, to our guests, Jill Stark and Nellie Thomas. So, also a big thanks to the other radiotherapists. You know, we are just a very small slice up here on stage. Thanks to all of our teams who rock in on Sunday mornings. Panel beater up the back. And there's about another, what, 15 of us? Oh, Miss Medic's (laughs) up the back. I think... Dr Nick as well. Dr Trainer Wheels here. It's Dr Nick Wheels. Oh, there's Dr Trainer Wheels in the back of the middle. Put your hand up. Yay! With baby. Um, we'd also really love to thank the whole team of volunteers and support staff who've put this on this morning. It's a, believe it, it's a massive effort getting all of this into space. And we'd also like to thank our technology partners, Avid and KV2 Monitoring, for the sound in the performance space. That's been amazing for us. Obviously, all of the subscribers in the room today and those listening at home, as you know, subscriptions are our lifeblood. We do our, you know, annual um, radiothons, but we absolutely adore the support that everyone gives us. Um, you fund the station. You, of course, get all the opportunities to come to these sorts of events and a million others. You get all the preview film screenings, discounts all around Melbourne and the chance to win giveaways throughout the year. Now, I do that so smoothly. It's almost like I'm not reading it. Who else have we got to thank? How cool is that Triple R card? the new triple R card with like all the little logos on it. That's really, really groovy. So with that out occasionally too. It is, uh, look, if you haven't subscribed to triple R, it's not too late. You can subscribe anytime during the year because not just for supporting the station, but also you get lots of stuff for yourself too. And, you know, we also love a lot of feedback here, you know, so you can, obviously you can listen to our podcast and all that sort of bizzo and go to uh, Radio On Demand on the um, Triple R website. Um, We have a Facebook page, uh, Radiotherapy at Triple R, and uh, we love the feedback. I've got to, you know, look, here's my blank, here's our blanket apology for the year. We're not fantastic at answering everything because it's it's one of those situations where too many cooks (laughs) spoil the broth. There's like about 15 of us reading it and we always assume someone else is going to answer it. So apologies if we're slow. Feel free to send another message saying, Hey, dipshits, answer. Um, but we do do our best and we Can love we the suggestions in particular for guests. We're normally a couple of months behind, but we do our best to get to them. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.